Amen. Well, happy Father's Day, everybody, or to the fathers in the room at least. I hope you've uh, taken a moment today if your dad is around. My dad's here. Happy Father's Day, Dad. That's when um, our campus busts into applause for you. It's shameless. Makes him feel like a million bucks, you know. Uh, in this room today on Father's Day, we've got a whole lot of people. I'm not ignorant to who's here. We've got dads in this room who have been dads for decades. Anybody here been a dad for longer than 20 years? Longer than 40 years? We give moms roses for things like this. We just say hi to you. Um, anyone in here been a dad for just a couple of days, really? Just maybe less than two years. You've been a dad less than two years. Yeah, cool. This is awesome. Thanks. We've got guys on both sides of the spectrum here. We've got uh, sons in this room who look forward to one day being dads themselves. We have sons in this room who look at Father's Day, and it's an awesome day to celebrate their dad because their dad was their hero. And we've got sons in this room who, if we were to sit down over a cup of coffee, you'd look at me and say, Dan, my dad was a joke. We've got sons and daughters who are in this room today who Father's Day brings back the memory of their dad, and they mourn his passing, and they uh, remember their dad today. We have daughters in this room who were daughters of amazing fathers. We have daughters today who are daughters of absentee father, fathers. And we have wives who are flourishing under the care of their husband. And we have wives who are wilting under the care of their husbands. But what we don't have here in this room today is anyone without a concept of dad. That's the one thing that is universal. We all have this mental picture of dad. We all have, whether you knew your biological dad or not, we all have this category in our minds, this, this mental picture, because dads are our first man, our first man in our lives. The title of the message today is The First Man. What I mean by this phrase, the first man, is two things. Really, really it just means the first, like the first one you ever knew, probably. There's good probability that your dad was the first dude in your life. My son, Miles, um, just had the, he, had, he had the privilege of hanging out with me for a couple extra days as his mom was uh, away out of town for a couple days. And uh, when me and Miles were hanging out, Dad got a lot of time with Miles. And uh, Mommy came home yesterday, and I remember doing the trade-off with Kristen as she came home, and he looked at her, and he looked at me, and he looked at her, and he looked at me, and he goes, Mama? Dada, Mama! And he's recognizing that there's a difference between the two of us. And as he grows, I'm the first man in his life. But the second maybe idea that this title, first man, encompasses is not just one of being the first, but also being the one of most importance. To be the first man is to be the most important man. The first man is this mental picture, this ideal that we all have in our lives of what a dad should be. It's what gives us the framework and the foundation for how we think we ought to run our lives. And more often than not, our first man, this big ideal, this mental picture, this standard by which we judge ourselves as fathers is a construct. It's a mosaic of all these moments in life where we look back at our first man, dad, and we look back and we say, how did he do it? And whether we think he was good or not determines whether or not we're going to do the same things that he did. See, no matter how you cut it, the first man in your life is so important. The first man is a massive force in your life because he's what you expect as a man to become. And however your dad was shapes the mental image of what you think a dad should be or should not be. I am totally in the thick of it right now. Let me give you a glimpse into the Jacobson family. Um, I've got a daughter. She's three, just turned three years old. We did it up big for her birthday. We went to the zoo. 
at the zoo, we'd walk through all of these exhibits and remember running into the polar bears and it was really hot outside and the polar bears were lounging. It was awesome. And Elaine goes, look, daddy, look, a polar bear. I was like, yeah, there's a polar bear. She goes, he's looking for his daddy. I was like, yeah, polar, yeah, animals have daddies, right. And um, she's old enough now where she realizes that I am not the daddy to every child around here, which is a good thing (laughs) in way more ways than one. Elin realizes that there's a difference in families. She's finally putting together the pieces that if it were not for this God in her mind that put us together in the same family, she could have had any dad. And as the first man in her life, I am the mental picture of what comes into her mind as dad. But also, I am the standard. My character is the standard. The patterns that I'm setting for her in these early years of her life are what she is going to use to judge every other man against for the next 18 to 20 years, probably. She's going to come home some days and say, Dad, why can't I do this? Mr. Derek lets his daughters do this. And she's going to put me against some dads. And she's, she's going to be challenging me as the first man. But as such, it is my role and my responsibility to set a good example for my daughter. And why I say I'm in the thick of it right now is because she's just three years old. She knows very little. Ask her who the president is. She has no idea. Ask her where she lives. She can say Valparaiso. You know, ask her, is it sunny outside? Sometimes she gets that wrong. And, uh, and yet, Elin knows me. She knows my character. She knows my rhythms and my routines. She's watched me live. She uh, knows when I'm interested in her or when I'm ignoring her. She knows when I'm hard at work or when I'm phoning it in. She knows when I'm happy or when I'm sad, when I'm frustrated or elated. She knows. And all of it, even as a three-year-old, is forming for her a mental picture, this high ideal of her first man, dad. And whether I like it or whether she likes it is not the issue. The reality is that I am, and I am creating her first man. One of the greatest challenges in Father's Day in our modern era is that the dads who take their role and responsibility as the first man in the life of their kids, the dads that take that seriously, broad strokes seems to be a a dying breed. Seems to be a thing of a bygone era of fathers who would really put in what needed to be put in. Secular uh, Secular sociologists and evangelical theologians alike have long acknowledged the breakdown in family as a problem. Some of them even call this an epidemic. Pew Research, which is a non-Christian, just a very uh, notorious research firm, they released this graph. I want to show you this graph. Just seven months ago, this is December 2015, they released this. This is the, the living arrangements for, most of our, for kids living in America. And you can see it traces from 1960 to 1980 to 2014. And on the left-hand side, these are kids who live in the family where mom and dad were first married together. And you notice that in 1960, this was 73%. That was the norm. We used to talk about families as a unit. And yet today, we have, in 2014, all of these categories on the right-hand side, some of which were not even in existence back in the 1980s. I think one of the disheartening facts that is buried within the research of this study is that one of the numbers, that number of 
kids who are being raised today by single parents. That's 26% of the kids in the world today being raised by single parents. Of that, 9 out of 10 of those kids are being raised in homes without a dad. 9 out of 10. Where dad is not there. Where dad has done something and lost custody. Where dad has blown up the family. I, before I came to Bethel, I was a student ministry pastor and had tons of single parent family kids coming to our ministry, just tons of them, dozens of these uh, types of kids coming in, Love, lovely kids. And my own experience finds the stats to be true, that out of all the kids, I could only think of one who was being raised by dad. See, boys need dads. They need them bad. Boys are twice as likely in educational standards to fail or to be developmentally challenged. 80% of juveniles who get arrested each year are boys. And in those 80%, a key factor in their delinquency is fatherlessness. One sociologist puts the number out there that three to one are the amount of kids who are delinquent who live with just mom as opposed to dad. And not only do boys need dads, girls need dads. And if you're a dad of a daughter, I highly recommend you to get Meg, uh, Meg Meeker's book, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. Get your phone out right now. Go to Amazon.com. It's less than 10 bucks. Call that Happy Father's Day present to yourself. And uh, read this book if you're a dad of a daughter. Because in it, Meg walks you through how girls grow and mature and how they need fatherly guidance and attention increasingly all the more in their lives to help them make healthy lifestyle decisions. And when dad doesn't show up in the life of his daughter, she begins to seek male attention elsewhere, and those elsewheres seldom are good influences. Statistics today of teenage sexual activity is completely disheartening. But I'll say this, nationwide, one out of three teenage girls who get pregnant decide to deal with their unwanted pregnancy via abortion. Many sociologists agree that these girls are subconsciously trying to compensate for affection that should have come from their first man, from dad. Dr. Edwin Cole, he's a Christian, he puts it this way. He says, the father absence is the curse of our day. So many problems, so many atrocities, so many evils in and of themselves stem from the breakdown of dad. So happy Father's Day. See you next week. The first man is, is critical. I hope you see what I'm trying to weave together for you. It's just the crucial nature of what dad is in our lives. And his absence has caused the family to be in crisis. And even if you're a healthy family where mom and dad are still together and loving each other and making this thing work, the culture that so surrounds us of all of these issues that have been caused because other dads have abdicated their their position in their family. The, the problems that come with that have crept their way into even seemingly healthy families. And no one is immune. So many dads today are dealing with issues in their family that we haven't dealt with in 20 years because our society altogether has been missing dad. This morning is not a message just for fathers, although it surely is a message for fathers. This message is a message that we have today for all of us. Husbands, wives, children, moms, and dads. So we ask the question, what do we do in a society that's crumbling? What do we do when 
conventional wisdom, that, that is, what, what everybody expects to have happen as a dad, what everybody is okay with a dad being, when conventional wisdom and cultural methods of fathering, what do we do when all of that is just doing more harm than good? Let me say it differently. Let me ask the question a little differently. How do we as families forgive the past and move forward into the future to bring about health into this world? I'm really glad you asked that question. It pleases me every time you ask a question because I have an answer for you. And it's this. It's that when convention fails, when the traditional methods of the day fail, we've got to look back at creation. When convention fails, look back at creation. I want you to open up to Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. When convention fails, when what's expected in the world, what's allowed in the world, when divorce and remarriage is the standard by which the world is okay with, when that fails and it leads to more problems than good, we've got to look back to creation. My daughter, uh, when she was two years old, I have this vivid memory of her picking up a, uh, it was a digital camera. Do you remember the digital cameras? That's what people used to use before iPhones came out. It was like this device that only took pictures. And uh, my daughter found ours and picked it up, and she put it to her ear and said, hello. And surely she had seen Kristen and I do this hundreds of times with our phones. Um, but had she looked and realized what this device was made to do, she would have realized that it's better at taking pictures and capturing the moment than talking across the country. The design determines the way that you use it. And Genesis chapter 2 and 3, they're the design of God for how men are supposed to relate in this world as husbands and as dads and as men. Genesis 2 is how God sets the stage for men to see their design. So here we have the record of creation's first man, literally the first man and the most important man, Adam. I'm starting in verse 15. Do you have verse 15 in front of you? You do because of the screens. Thank you, screens. Read with me. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." This is the picture that God has put out there for us as what it means for a man to be in relationship in a proper way with his wife and in his family. This is creation's first man, Adam. In just 10 verses, God has ordained a wedding. I love how God does this. I hope you saw this. 
In just 10 verses, he ordains a wedding, creating the institution of marriage and family. This is God's idea. This is God's good intention. This was not made up by man some time ago because he was lonely. This is God's idea. And in the midst of it, God is modeling for Adam how he expects Adam to model his family. Notice the things that God does here in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 25. The three things that God does to model for Adam. The first is this, is that he's a providing father. That our God is a providing father, and he provides for Adam in so many ways. He provides for his basic needs, spiritually. You don't be more provided in your spiritual life than to have God actually walk with you. Wouldn't you say? God kind of checks that box pretty thoroughly with Adam. Physically, Adam is placed into paradise with bountiful food. Emotionally, Adam is secure in his relationship to God and who God has made him to be. Relationally, God provides Adam a wife. In fact, God says, all of this is great, but one thing is not great. I need to provide something for Adam. It's not right for him to be alone. I need to make a helper who is fit for him. And so God designs a bride. He causes Adam to fall into a deep sleep and he opens up Adam's side and he pulls out a rib and he tailor made for Adam a wife. So perfectly was Eve made for Adam and Adam made for Eve. My grandpa put in his commentary this phrase. He says, it's been said before that Eve was made not from the man's feet to be trampled by him, nor from his head to rule over him, but from his side to be near his heart and to be loved by him. And spiritually, physically, emotionally, and relationally, Adam is provided for. And then finally, sexually, we see that at the end of Genesis chapter 2, that the man and the woman are in the garden, they're both naked, and they feel no shame. All of his major needs, God has met, and met so well. He's a providing father. And the second thing is this, that God is a protecting father. Protecting father father. Notice I didn't say, and some of you parents need to hear this, I didn't say helicopter father. You know, those dads that are always hovering over their kids, not letting them do everything, always making decisions for them. We see God here as a protecting father, and yet he's one that allows Adam to have range and to do what he needs to do. But also notice that Adam was not placed in this limitless world of total anarchy. There were boundaries put in place for Adam's protection. And if you're thinking along, you say, well, this is the Garden of Eden. What could there possibly need to be protection from? This is where all the moms of um, one-year-olds kind of raise their hand and they kind of say, well, like, themselves? Like, sometimes you got to protect a kid from themselves. We've got a lady in our church who's got kids that are really close in age, and she's described parenting to us as um, sometimes it's called suicide and homicide prevention. Just going to make sure that the kids don't kill each other and make sure they don't kill themselves. And that's a win. And this is what God is doing for Adam in the garden. He says, all the trees you may freely eat, but one. Because on that day when you eat it, you shall surely die. God is a protecting father. Not out of his cruelty does he set limits, but out of his goodness does he set limits. And Adam is positioned as the head of his household to set limits for his family to help them stay within God's accord. And finally, God is an initiating father. If you look back at these verses, I want you to notice the initiating actions of God. 
God takes Adam and he puts him in the garden. We have no idea if Adam liked this decision or not. Some of us kind of think of God as this big hand coming out and picking up a little ant-sized Adam. He's kicking and screaming, I don't want to go there! And God places him in the garden. No, 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 no. God's a good initiating father and he takes his son and he puts him in a good place. And Adam had no say in that matter. God gives Adam a job to do. He gives him chores to do in the garden. Work the garden, keep it, and tend to it. Some Hebrew scholars say that that literally means just worship and obey God. And Adam had no say in that either. And Adam is also given authority to name all of the animals. Who knew if he wanted this job? Sometimes at my house, I'm asked to put, you know, make decisions for what paint colors go on the walls. And I'm often like, I don't want that job. That is a job for someone with a higher pay grade than me. I don't have that skill. I'm not good at that. If God were to come to me and say, Dan, name all the animals, I'd say big one, small one, fat one, short one. Four legs, six legs. Adam wasn't given, Adam, this is your, this is your mission if you choose to accept it. He was just said, this is your mission. You will accept it. And the initiating leadership of our God is so good. And here's why. Because God doesn't ask Adam to do anything that he hasn't created him to do. God has so perfectly lined up Adam's future that he's got all the skills, all that he needs, everything to be able to do what God has asked him to do, to worship God and glorify him by fulfilling his mission. So Adam here, our first man, has what it takes. He knows that our God is a providing God, a protecting God, an initiating, leading God. God says, Adam, this is how I want you to lead your family, to be an initiating leader, to be a providing leader, to be a protecting leader. Guys, that's what it means for us as our first man in creation to look upon Adam and say, that's the design for me as a husband. That's the design for me as dad is to lead my family, to protect my family, to provide for my family. I meet so many guys who in one of these three areas are failing. A guy comes up to me and says, Dan, I've got this job. It doesn't make ends meet. What do I do? And I say, get another job. Your role is to provide for your family. Dan, I don't like this guy coming around my house. He really creeps me out. I don't like him the way he treats my daughter. Well, don't let him come around your house. Protect your family. How many dads would do so much better to just go back and reject conventional wisdom? What are all the other dads doing out there? And just look at creation and say, this is how God has wired me to run in this lane as a dad, and it's my responsibility. It's my obligation. It's my burden. It's my cross to carry. And so I do so out of reverence for the Lord because that's the type of dad he is for me. As creation's first man, this is what Adam knew from his own father, and this is how God wants him to lead his wife. And yet, as even though chapter 2 closes, the man and woman were both naked and unashamed. They're in the center of God's will. They're exactly the way that things are supposed to be. We know that the fall of man corrupts creation. And if you slide over in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, I want to pick up in the middle of the temptation of Eve and see what happens to this man who is supposed to be leading this family. This is really the next breath in the scriptures. Genesis 3, verse 6. Eve has been duped by the serpent, and this is what happens. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was the delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate 
Now, countless men in the course of history in the church have just stopped right there. And they would preach messages to their congregation and say things like, see how awful women are. And I'm glad we can laugh at this, but this is a real thing that has happened in our history. See how awful and how gullible and how uh, beguiled they can be. See how whimsical and untrustworthy women are. Can we just finish the verse, though? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired for making one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also, gave some to her who? Who? Her husband, who was where? With her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. That's a total contrast. Everything's changed. Everything is broken. Out of the center of God's will, out of what their design is supposed to be, everything is fractured and corrupted, even their own innocence. Let me ask you this. What was Adam's charge by God? Protect your family. Provide for your family. Lead your family. And yet it takes six and a half verses before we even see Adam show up in the account. I mean, what was Adam's role? He should have initiated an intervention with the snake. Um, There's snakes in my yard at my house. I initiate a lot of interventions with the snakes. Every time I do, I feel like I'm doing what Adam didn't do. Putting a rake through a snake is a good feeling. I'm not a sociopath, I promise. What should Adam, Adam have done? He should have interjected himself and protected his wife. Not because Eve was some second-rate citizen, not because women are, are prone towards temptation, not because of any of these things, not because women can't think. No, 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 no. Because Adam's God-ordained, rightly-given obligation was to stand up and defend his family. Not because women are weak, but because God's asked you, Dad, to do this. Not because you're married to someone who's not smart, Not at all. It's because God has placed this burden upon Adam. The Apostle Paul comments in Romans about this sin, and he highlights not the colossal failure of Eve, but of Adam. Why? Eve eats the apple first, but Adam is the one held accountable to God. It's because he failed to lead his wife, because he failed to protect his wife, and in doing so, he was disengaging from his responsibility as a man. And isn't it fitting, can we just acknowledge this, isn't it fitting that the first sin in recorded history is one of a man being passive and letting his his rule and his authority be abdicated? The first sin in all of history is one of a man kind of shirking his responsibilities. The first sin in recorded history is a man who disengaged and ultimately disobeys God. And I think when we see passive men in our society, we're watching a reenactment of Genesis chapter 3 time and time and time again happening all around us all the time. It happens in our own hearts, guys. Our history as a people went south the first moment that Adam abdicated his authority. And since then, all of us men have become sons of Adam. We are men who are prone to have the same type of heart that Adam has. We look upon dads and we see that they can't quite compel themselves to engage with their kids. We see dads that struggle to provide for the kids. We see dads that struggle to protect their kids. 
So many are just daunted by the task altogether that the easiest route is apathy. I'll go play golf with the guys. I'll tinker in the garage. I'll be in my man cave playing video games until the kids go to bed. Hey, where's dad? Family's hanging out. Kids are doing homework. He's not home. He's off the clock, but he's nowhere to be found. He's just like Adam, brushing off responsibility to his family. Where's dad? Oh, he's in the basement again. Where's dad? Oh, he's taking a nap. Where's dad? Oh, he's watching the game on his own TV. This week I read, the average American dad spends just three minutes of undivided attention each day with each kid. Sons of Adam. And guys, if anybody understands this, it's me. I totally get this. There are days when I finish a, a day here in the office. I've maybe spent some time with you. I've spent time here in the church working, pouring out my soul in my job. Come home spent. And there have been days where I sit in the driveway, turn off the keys, sit in my car, and I just take a deep breath. Because I know on the other side of that door is a bounding three-year-old with endless energy. And a one-year-old who can't talk but walks like Frankenstein. And all he wants to do is headbutt me and make me tired. <laughs> and there's been this little phrase that I've been muttering to myself over and over again recently. It's been convicting to my own heart because I sense myself as a son of Adam just disengaging so frequently. Just this phrase of attention is not, or attendance is not attention. Attendance is not attention. Attendance is not attention. Attendance is not attention. Just because I'm physically in front of my kids doesn't mean that I'm mentally engaged and spiritually engaged and attentive to the needs and their growth and desires and their joys and their hurts. You see, attendance is half the battle. If dads could just show up, that'd be great. Most kids in America say that's all they expect out of their dad is to show up. And yet what was Adam's sin? It wasn't showing up. He was there. It was being attentive. He was in attendance, but he wasn't attentive. His role was to see the problems in his family, to interject himself where appropriate, to help bring correction where there was problems. Man, how many dads know this, that we just got to put the phone down? You're in the house, but you're not in the room. Or you're in the room and you're not in the conversation. You're in the news, you're in the scores, you're in Seth Curry throwing his mouth guard. You're in everything else except your kids. Adam struggled to engage. And men, you inherited that dysfunction. And just like Adam, we are held accountable for it. He was designed to bear the burden of leadership, provision, and protection, but he traded it all for apathy and he was rewarded with ruin. And the curse of sin, it so weaves its thread through the fabric of our families. It's handed down from one generation to another. Every family is affected and touched by this disease. No one is immune. And the Apostle Paul makes this case incredibly clearly in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 12. I want to put that on the screen. You can read along with me. Paul says this, talking about this incident here in Genesis chapter 3. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. 
Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Paul in Romans 5 is teaching an incredibly complex, very complicated thing. I want to just distill it for you quickly. He's saying that all of humanity's problems, all of our sin are tied up in Adam's sin. That sin came into the world through one man's sin. Listen, you and I were not standing next to Adam when he took that bite. But you and I are all seminally culpable. We all, because of our association with Adam, are guilty. So all of us have been affected by this curse. All of us have sin. And all of us have death. And verse 14 says that Adam is a type of the one who is to come. Adam, that means that Adam is a figure. He is showing us a model. He is showing us an incomplete picture of one who is going to come and fill in the gaps for us all the more. What Paul is doing is he's taking Genesis chapter 3. He's taking the roles that men are supposed to be uh, living in. And he's saying, look, creation has failed. We learn that when convention fails, look to creation. But what happens when creation fails? Paul says when creation fails, look to redemption. When creation fails, look to redemption. That we have in Christ another way. There is one to come. There is a redemption. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, Paul talks about this in a different way. He says that Adam was the first man and that Christ was the last Adam. If you're following along, that's a really tricky thing. I want to say it this way. This may make your mind twist a little bit. Just look at me like this if it doesn't make sense. So if Adam is the first man and Christ is the last Adam, by the transitive property, that means that Christ is the last first man. That Christ is the last one with all the influence and authority that we'll ever need. Christ is the last one who has modeled perfectly what it means for us to be men in this life. That Christ is the one who shows us the way to the Father. That Christ is the one who fills in the gaps where Adam failed. I'm going to just put a chart on the screen to show you this very quickly. I could, I could do 12 messages on this. We'll do this in six seconds. Here's the difference between Adam and Christ. We see Adam was made from the earth, but Christ came from heaven. Adam was reigned as king over old creation, but Christ reigns as the king priest over new creation. Adam was tested in the garden, and he disobeyed, and Christ was tested in the wilderness, and he obeyed, and then he was tested in the garden of Gethsemane, and he surrendered his will to God. Adam's disobedience brought sin, condemnation, and death to the entire family of the human race. And yet Christ's obedience brought righteousness, salvation, and life to all who believe to make us a new family. Through Adam, death and sin reign in this world. But through Christ, all believers reign in this life. And Adam lost paradise through his sin. And Christ defeated our sin to gain us paradise. In every way, I could keep going. I had more that came to my mind this morning. I just didn't have time to put them on the slide. But we keep going on this, how Christ is in every way superior to Adam. And and here's the big idea, guys. This is the whole point, that where we are in our failure is not where we have to end up. Where we are in the ways that we've let our families down is not determinative of the future of our failure. That there's an alternate ending available for the dysfunction of our families, for the dysfunctions of your soul, for your own future. That your poor examples in parenting are not a determination sentence on you. I I think I have to apologize. I think I buried the lead in this message. I think I want you to know that there's hope for those nine out of ten kids who are being raised in families by one parent. 
His name's Jesus. He's the last first man that they'll ever need. The first first man was a total wreck. We're all total wrecks. And yet here comes Christ, the last Adam, the, the perfect picture, the one who shows us the way to the glorious God has come and he's given hope to everyone. Which means that you, son, who had a, a dad who was not attentive to your life can find healing and forgiveness at the cross of Jesus Christ. You, daughter, whose dad did not treat you the way he should have can find healing and hope and reconciliation and restoration at the cross of Jesus Christ. That on the cross, Jesus opened up his arms to anyone who believed and he said to them, this way to the good, good father, this way to redemption, this way back to paradise, this way back to home, where our first father, our first man led us out of the garden, Christ came to lead us back in. And today, dads, you need to know this truth, that though our first father, Adam, screwed up life for us, our second, last first man came to restore it. And your life has real hope. Beyond the statistics that they tell us from Pew Research, beyond what we see in the world around us, beyond everything, we have hope. And that's the mission of this church. The mission of this church is to lead individuals into a a lifelong relationship with Jesus Christ where families can be changed. One of the biggest desires of our church, one of the things that I love so much about this campus is the enormous amount of kids that are in that kid space right now. And dads, we have a future and we have an inheritance and we have a responsibility to raise those kids well, don't we? You don't have to be a biological dad to a kid in our church to have an influence over a kid. And how good it is in God's good design and through the reconciliation and redemption and forgiveness that's available through Jesus. That when we come to Christ through the gospel that he heals and he restores and he redeems. What would it look like in Portage, Indiana if dad led his family the way that Jesus led the family? You say, Dan, I don't know what that looks like. Well, Paul kind of gives us a little bit more of a picture in Romans chapter 5, verse 17. He says this, For if because of one man's trespass, that's because Adam sinned, Death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? If death was so pervasive to the human race because of one man's sin, Paul says, how much better the one act of goodness, the one act of righteousness, the one act of true, godly, righteous living, that he would sacrifice himself on the cross for us? How much better does that make those who believe in the grace and the righteousness to live as victorious people in this life today. What happens, Dad, when you start to live in grace and righteousness? What happens in Hobart when Dad begins to live in righteousness and grace? Righteousness, doing the right thing taking your responsibility as a man, taking your God-given responsibility and obligation to shepherd your kids, to lead them to Jesus, taking that to heart and living in light of Jesus. And grace, not being a jerk about it. To lovingly give your kids what they don't deserve, which is second chances. To lovingly correct them and bring them back. To be a dad who your kids never have to fear going to and saying, hey, dad, I screwed up. What happens in your family if dads start to rule in righteousness and grace? I think it looks a little bit more like heaven and a lot less like hell. 
If you're a dad, I want you to stand up. Go ahead, stand up. I'm a dad too, and so I stand with you guys. And if you're a kid of a dad around here, I want you, and you're nearby, I want you to kind of put your hand on your dad. If you're a spouse or a wife or a daughter, I want you to put your hand on your dad. You might need to move and get out of your chair to do this. That's okay. But I think we need to pray for our dads, don't we? Dads? Let's pray. God, I know I'm humbled and daunted at the fact that you have positioned us in places of influence and responsibility. As dads, you have given us a clear mandate to lead, to provide, to protect, to live in righteousness and grace. And Father, I want to claim that truth for these men who are standing right now that as they fix their eyes upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of their faith, that as they do that, as they look to the cross, as they embrace by faith the one act of righteousness by the one man, Jesus Christ, you would help them to reign in this life as your word promises, through righteousness and grace. God, I pray for these dads. We often don't know how to do this. We often want to do something but are afraid of the repercussions. We often see something but are afraid of it coming over heavy-handed. God, we, we ask for grace for our dads. Would you help us to be fathers who know the hearts of our children, who are interested in what's going on in their lives, who are able to say, I'm sorry, who are able to apologize first, who are able to model the gospel for our kids. Help us to lead families that love you all the more. God, we want to be husbands and dads of families that are bright lights in the community and not dark blights. We, we want to be shining examples for how you've created men, real men, not the cultural perception of men, but real men, real godly men. We need your help. And we recognize right now that that help is Jesus. God, I ask that if there's a dad who's standing right now who does not know Jesus, that you would be drawing him to yourself right now. That you'd be allowing his heart to be softened to the gospel, that you came to save sinners of which we are the chiefs. And that you love and you forgive and you accept us, not because of what we do as dads, but because of who you are and what your son has done for us on the cross. That one act of righteousness that changes everything. And we stand today as fathers, thankful for who you are as the good, good father, who would send his son to die for the likes of us, that you might redeem our families and help us to live as lights in in this world for your gospel.